Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another week of Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra. Now, recently, there's been a buzz in social media about the new dangers of mRNA vaccines in livestock. And of course, there's nothing to worry about, there. but the buzz is all about the risk. And it started with some tweets by Robert Malone, the guy who claims to be the inventor of the technology and is starting to grab some sort of attention, especially in the anti-vaccination and anti-mRNA vaccination circles. Recent legislation that's been brought to the fore in Missouri and Idaho and Arizona uh, seek to limit the deployment and access to this new technology, which really could potentially hurt farmers and ranchers. So I wanted to talk to two experts on this particular topic. So today we're speaking with Dr. Allison Van Enenem. She's a cooperative extension specialist in animal genomics and biotechnology at the University of California, Davis. So welcome back for what, the eighth or ninth time, Allison. <laughs> nice to be back, Kevin. Yeah, and today we're also joined by Dr. Terry Leyenbauer. He's a professor in the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of California, Davis. So welcome to the podcast, Terry. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you very much. This is really an important topic because it's hot, it's in the news, and it's really important that we help fortify the listeners and the other communicators with the proper information so they can help diffuse the false information. So let's um, start at the beginning. Can we just revisit mRNA vaccines? Um, why are there... Why are they useful and what advantages do they have over traditional inactivated or attenuated viral vaccines? The main advantages of mRNA vaccines is their, their custom nature. And I'm talking in the livestock area. So when there are existing commercial vaccines for a number of diseases, but when the existing vaccines are effective or not specific for the disease problems, the mRNA vaccine technology provides an option to veterinarians and their, their producers to create a custom vaccine in a relatively short period of time that offers a chance for being effective against dealing with diseases. And mostly in this regard, we're talking about viral diseases rather than bacterial diseases. So it's the custom nature, how quickly they can be developed, and when they're relatively potent or effective regarding the immune response that they generate. And so that's the main advantages and, and reasons for co considering the mRNA vaccines in, in the livestock world. Maybe maybe I could just um, pipe in here, Kevin, in that just to make sure everyone's on the same page what an mRNA vaccine is. Basically, you're introducing uh, the messenger RNA, which tells the body to produce a particular protein. And you want that protein to be an antigen to which the body will then produce antibodies. So it's introducing an antigen in a way that is very targeted for the protein that's associated with whatever um, virus you're trying to eliminate without actually having to introduce either an inactivated virus or an attenuated virus. And so it's a, it's a very targeted way to just produce a protein. And the mRNA, once it's produced, the protein breaks down really quickly. <laughs> um, in fact, it's 
kind of hard to keep RNA around. It's a very uh, easily destroyed molecule. And so after it's been um, given, it is quickly broken down. And so it's, it's really a targeted way to introduce uh, an antigen that the body then produces antibodies to. And that is what gives you protection from the, the particular um, virus that you're trying to protect against. And we know that in COVID, the discussion was around how agile the, the, uh, this technology was in terms of uh, responding to new variants or even the original uh, variant being uh, available as a vaccine within 42 days of the sequence occurring. Is that really why they're so attractive in livestock as well? Right. Uh, again, it's the, for situations like, for example, in the swine industry, there can be some GI diseases related to uh, rotaviruses and different, different strains of those. And so there are no existing vaccines or other treatments that are effective. So the mRNA vaccine platform that Allison described is a very unique way to take a virus from the, the swine operation that's having problems and developing a messenger RNA vaccine product so that it will be specific for that farm and, and be effective for dealing with the disease. And so that's, that's kind of the main, one of the main advantages is existing products aren't available or effective. And so veterinarians and producers are looking for other solutions. And so the mRNA provides that opportunity. I think the other one that I see is that it makes it much easier to produce than to produce viruses and then purify the, the proteins from them or to attenuate them, that here you're just producing a nucleic acid and then encapsulating that in a nanoparticle. And just the manufacturer side is so much easier and faster and less uh, onerous regulation that it just makes us so much more agile. But what are some of the examples of diseases in livestock that are really on the drawing board to be addressed by mRNA vaccines? Currently, there I'm only aware of two different companies that are actually producing mRNA vaccines for, for livestock use through their veterinarians. And so one of those companies is MedGene Labs, which happens to be located in Brookings, South Dakota. And it, you know, it's been around for 10 years or so, as I understand. And then the other one is uh, Merck Animal Health. And right now, all of the messenger RNA vaccines that are available uh, to be produced are for swine and swine diseases. There's obviously work being done to develop some for cattle, but none currently are available at this time. And again, they're all viruses in the swine industry, the ones that are being used. Uh, swine influenza is one in particular. And then, as I mentioned, rotavirus and some other viral uh, diseases, particularly it seems like respiratory and, and diseases that cause problems with the digestive system are the main pathogens or disease-causing viruses where there's the greatest need and opportunity for the mRNA vaccines. So it's, it's actually relatively new. Uh, they haven't been available very long. It's fairly recently. But I would expect with time that they'll become available for other, other livestock besides swine, cattle, and others. And uh, as we learn more about them, they'll probably have wider, avail wider usage uh, going 
going forward in time. When we look at examples of uh, swine diseases, for instance, uh, I think it's uh, is it East African swine fever virus, which was endemic in China, that reduced their uh, swine herd by half or by PERS in the states, which has huge economic impact. How much does viral disease really cost the animal industry? Oh, that's a lot, Kevin. So, you know, African swine fever decimated the Chinese uh, swine industry and PERS is um, endemic here in America. And I think it, it's, it, it's around about a billion dollars in um, losses from that. It's both a respiratory and reproductive syndrome virus. So it affects both ends of it. Um, and certainly it's something that um, if we had a solution to it, and there are a couple of different approaches, obviously the viral vaccines that we're talking about, um, but also there is actually um, a genome edited pig that's being um, taken through um, authorization that actually has inactivated the actual gene that enables the virus to gain access to the pigs that produces pigs that are no longer susceptible to the virus. And I guess as a as a geneticist, I think that if you can produce pigs that aren't susceptible or use a vaccine to make pigs that are no longer going to suffer from that virus, that's a better solution than having pigs that get sick and needed to get treat, treated with antibiotics. And, you know, these are solutions to problems. Um, and to me, let's not stop progress and innovation from addressing these problems, because to me, that's better than having pigs getting sick and dying and better for the farmer, better for the pigs, better for the environment. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And as a guy who periodically has to vaccinate chicks against Merck's disease, that if there was a way that I could have a chicken that was genetically not susceptible to it, that would be the much preferred uh, possibility. So this idea of having genetically engineered pigs, that's a great topic for another time. Actually, we <laughs> did that on the series. But when we talk about the vaccines and we're giving vaccines to livestock in general, isn't there a withdrawal period before the animal can be processed for food? Uh, yes, that's true. Uh, all vaccines that are administered to livestock have a withdrawal period of, of 21 days. There are some vaccines that may have a 60-day withdrawal period, and that's for, for animals going into meat production. Uh, the withdrawal periods don't apply for, for the milk production aspect, and it's, it's directly related to the fact that the vaccines are injected into the animal or applied to the animal through other routes. And so the 21 day withdrawal has been around for a long time in the law. And it's just uh, an extra measure of caution. And the ones that are 60 days that are longer are most of the time due to the, what's called the adjuvant that's in the vaccine to provide a stronger immune response. Those Specific vaccines uh, with certain adjuvants have a, a longer period of 60 days. So all vaccines have a withdrawal period of at least 21 days for uh, animals intended for meat production. And mRNA, like you mentioned, a relatively unstable molecule. And even these vaccines, which are manufactured with pseudouridine as a substitute for uridine or uracil, are they still um, relatively fast to turn over? Yeah, I mean... I presume you had some RNA vaccines during COVID and you remember how they were brought in on minus 80 and then they had to be used very quickly because um, they do break down very quickly. And, um, you know, when I look at some of the information or I would argue misinformation around the mRNA vaccines as it relates to livestock is that 
somehow this would be transferred to humans via their diet in meat and milk. It's just, it's first of all, there aren't any mRNA vaccines for cattle, but just the, the whole concept, it, it, just, it just makes me concerned about science education because that's not how it works. Like when you eat DNA from an animal, you don't get the DNA transforming you in the same way RNA, which is much more um, kind of you know, sensitive than, than DNA, it, it can't survive the digestive process. And it's just this idea that this is an issue or a safety concern just, just is not what biology suggests is true. And it's, uh, you know, I feel like we're, we've just substituted a different three-letter acronym for GMOs. And now we're just using, you know, our uh, mRNA <laughs> um, as a kind of a, a trigger for fear um, when, in fact, biology doesn't suggest that's the case. And uh, it's frustrating. And I, as a science communicator, I, I don't know how to address it because we've, we've been dealing with this for 20 years and we still have a lot of, um, you know, kind of misinformation around this type of technology. So, um, yeah, RNA is is hard to keep around. Ask anybody that works in a molecular lab because, you know, uh, doing, an, doing a blot with with RNA is always difficult, so I, um, it's hard to get that narrative um, away from fear, unfortunately. Well, one of the ways we might be able to start that equation is by talking about the good things that can come from it. And besides for applications in livestock, we know that Ebola, that SARS, MERS, and probably SARS-CoV-2, they all apparently came from animal intermediates and that there was some sort of zoonotic transfer to humans. And doesn't mRNA-based strategy like this mean that we could possibly even inoculate wild populations for when zoonotic potential variants are detected? I mean, really solve these problems before they start. Yeah, that, that's an interesting concept. I think it, it's certainly, you know, interesting to think about. I think from a clinical perspective as a veterinarian, one of the challenges in, in those kinds of approaches is how do you get the mRNA vaccine into the, the animal that you're trying to, to vaccinate to change the disease situation and the disease outcome. And so that always, for wildlife, is is a problem. And uh, my understanding that all the mRNA vaccines have to be injected. We have other diseases where we can provide vaccines orally. Uh, rabies is an example of that where oral vaccines can be given, but I'm not, I might have to defer to Allison, but I don't think any of our mRNA technologies allow that they would require the animal to be confined enough so that it could be injected in a certain way before they, before they could be vaccinated. Yeah, I, I think an oral mRNA would be digested quickly. <laughs> um, <laughs> so maybe, you know, Terry, that's a good point because that, that's part of the concern or the fear here is that eating animals that have had an mRNA vaccine somehow going to vaccinate the consumer. And so maybe you could speak a little bit about the oral vaccine. So you mentioned rabies. So what's different about that vaccine relative to mRNA vaccines that can put to rest this concern that somehow mRNA vaccines are going to be um, transmitted via milk and meat? What is it about the rabies vaccine that can be fed? Yes. Yeah, so obviously, as you indicated, just the normal eating and digestion process, the acids in the stomach and enzymes will break down substances or particles that are sensitive to those things, such as the mRNA for its for itself. But for other vaccines like the rabies, it's a a component that will 
bypass the effects of that and then will be taken up by the animal through the digestive system and then produce the immune response. And so with those dealing more with the entire virus particle and, and not a subs particle like it is with the mRNA. So it's a, it's a very different approach from, from a vaccination strategy. And that's why it can work for rabies for an oral vaccine. It would not work for an mRNA through an oral oral route for as for the reasons that you just explained. Now, very good. Well, we're speaking with Dr. Elson Van Enenem and Dr. Terry Leyenbauer, uh, both from University of California, Davis. And we're speaking about mRNA vaccines in livestock and attempting to diffuse a manufactured controversy. Uh, unfortunately, that's happening again. But this is the Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra, and we're speaking with Dr. Allison Van Enenem and Dr. Terry Leyenbauer of the University of California, Davis, and we're speaking about mRNA livestock vaccines and really the manufactured controversy around this excellent modality, which shows tons of promise for beating a whole host of diseases in animals as well as humans, but lots of interesting things happening in the veterinary world. I was, I was pretty amazed to see the large amount of uh, vaccines and diseases that are being targeted with this technology. Um, and what I'm interested in is what's happening in social media and in state legislatures. So what's going on right now with respect to potential legislation, policy changes around mRNA vaccines and the animals they're delivered to? A lot of times what seems to happen is some comment or statement is made and it may be perhaps a misspoken or misinterpreted or misapplied. And I think that's kind of the fundamental problem. And when, when there's fear or apprehension around a topic or a concern, such as there has been with vaccination, with mRNA vaccines and people related to COVID, then I think that just kind of, a, unfortunately, a spillover process when, when, People hear about another application in livestock, and and because of the unknown uh, or lack of knowledge, may cause actions to happen that, from a scientific standpoint, are not really justified or reasonable. And so that's that's kind of my general perspective. Uh, I mean, I, I think Kevin, what I've seen is is this proposed legislation. I think in Missouri that wants to label the meat from cattle inoculated with mRNA vaccines to be a gene therapy product. Um, and it, it reminds me a little bit of the GMO labeling debate. It's like, we just want to let people know as if there's something inherently dangerous there. Um, and I, I think we're going down that same pathway. Um, and the reason that I think it's concerning is that the gene therapy product concept is really not what's happening here. What's happening is if if it was being used in cattle, which it's not, as Terry just alluded to, it's being used in pork, so pig, um, if it was being used, 
It's introducing a, a short-term RNA that produces a protein that elicits an antibody response, and that's what protects the animal. It is not modifying the DNA of that animal in any way, and it's certainly not got the capacity to modify the DNA of the consumer who's subsequently going to eat that animal, you know, 60 days later or something like that. So I feel like the whole premise is set up on incorrect understanding of basic biology. Um, and it always sounds very innocuous. We just want to give consumers a choice. But just imagine. So, okay, I've, I want to label product that's had a certain vaccination. That in, it requires entire supply chain separation for something that is not any different in terms of inherent risks. And, and there's a very big cost associated with that. And so I feel a little bit like we're going to Groundhog's Day as it relates to GMO labeling as it relates to this animal was treated with mRNA. So if there's an inherent hazard, fine. Um, you know, if it's got a peanut allergy in it, I want to know that because maybe my kid has a peanut allergy. But if there's no difference in the safety of the product, just requiring labeling as a kind of a concept does come with these huge supply chain segregation issues, especially when you're talking about, for example, you know, meat and milk, which by definition are the combination of, of products from multiple animals. And so I think that it sounds innocuous, but it's actually quite difficult to implement. And it should be done in situations when there's an actual risk involved <laughs> rather than just, it would be nice to know. And I think that's what concerns me around this legislation. Yeah, also the fact that if they do it one way in Missouri and say you have to label it as gene therapy in Missouri, which it's not gene therapy, but then Arizona comes up with different rules or Idaho right. comes up with different rules. Now you have to have special packaging in every state, which you can imagine it's, would be a problem. It's, it's, it's GMO labeling 101. <laughs> we've, we've been through this and it was painful already. And, and it's like, yeah, here we go again kind of thing. So yeah, I think that the concept of gene, if it was that easy to do gene therapy, how amazing would that be to cure people that have genetic issues like sickle cell disease? Like that is not how this, if it was that easy that we would have solved that problem and, and it's not that easy. And I think it's a, just a fundamental misunderstanding of, of how the technology is being used. And it seems to be an intentional um, scare a technique by certain groups to, to create a drama or a controversy where none really should exist. Yeah. And I guess the big thing that bothers me is that this is technology that really is designed to help uh, poultry farmers and ranchers and could have tremendous benefit. And when you look at things like avian influenza and the fact that they, you know, bulldoze how many, you know, millions of birds every year, um, uh, fish farming, there are mRNA vaccines that are now targeting fish farming. So there's a, so many different, and these are all in development, but there are so many good options that would be outstanding for the farm and for the ranch that we're on the cusp of potentially losing if this kind of fear campaign gains hold and we have to start segregating products. Well, I think that's a great point. Uh, you know, our, our agriculture system, uh, particularly our livestock system, has made great progress over time with advances in science and technology. And it's really critical that that continues so that we can continue to feed a, an expanding population with products that are safe and wholesome and at an affordable cost. So if we lose the advantages of some of these technologies, such as mRNA vaccine technology, that will 
potentially decrease the food supply and make it more expensive and less available. And so that's clearly going in the wrong direction. One of the advantages of the mRNA vaccine technology is just like we saw, we've seen to some extent with human COVID or SARS-CoV-2 is that viruses by nature tend to change or mutate. And so this technology allows the veterinarian and the producer to quickly develop a, a new strain of the vaccine using this technology. And without it, that capability would not exist. And so, again, it's really important to, for these diseases caused particularly by viruses that we can be able to respond in a very timely and an effective way. Uh, and, and we don't have other tools that are as good at doing that as, we, as the mRNA technology potentially provides. Well, Dr. Allison Van Nienenem, Dr. Terry Lambauer, thank you very much for joining me today on the Talking Biotech Podcast. And I hope we can revisit this topic again sometime soon, because this seems like technology that's here to stay. And, and I'm amazed at how many different solutions are in development for animal diseases, which really are going to help the farmer and help animal husbandry, which is really important. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Kevin. Oh, thanks for having me on the program again, Kevin. And uh, it was fun to talk about this with Terry. And as always, thank you for listening to another week of the Talking Biotech podcast. Learn about mRNA vaccines in livestock and in conservation. This is a really important topic. And unfortunately, the manufactured controversy is gaining ground. We see this throughout social media right now. And it's time for us to put a wet blanket on this problem before it gets any worse. So share this podcast, share the story with friends and family. It's really important to share the science. Thank you for listening to Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Collabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Collabra's electronic lab notebook, Scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.